hello, and welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan, and uh, I'm here with someone who I I have to be uh, very close with from now on, uh, because something something's happened that has bonded us uh, forever. Um, a couple things did. Um, one of which was that while I was going out to get my laundry today, uh, I accidentally called him uh, and sent a, a left a voicemail uh, while I was singing uh, show tunes from My Fair Lady. It's Mercury Retrograde, as uh, I'm sure some of you uh, may know, and that's what this means. Um, what that means is that uh, things like this, horrible things can happen to you, um, so you have to be really vigilant. That person is Nick Newman, and so uh, I wanted to um, immediately figure out some way to uh, change the subject, and and that turned out to be uh, fortuitous, because there's another thing that we recently bonded over, and that was we both saw Mr. John Davies Kale live in show and concert in Brooklyn, New York, August 19th, 2023, at the Prospect Park Bandshell. Nick, welcome to Jokerman Podcast. Thank you, Evan. As a fan of the show, I'm experiencing sort of a first-time caller, long-time listener experience. And I'm glad that my pathway through it was something so sensitive and compromising. Well, it made me immediately think, you know, you know who'd be great on the show? Uh, Nick. And, and not just as a way to uh, make you forget. Or- I did mean it when I said that you're kind of a better singer than I would have expected. Not that I expect you to be a bad singer, but it goes even above those baseline expectations. As longtime listeners might know, I did uh, actually do theater. I was a drama major. And um, I I did do a lot of theater as a child, and uh, in, in growing up, did some musical theater. Um, I actually used to do children's musical theater camp with uh, Sam France from Foxygen uh, as a child. <laughs> There's always been sort of an indie rock um, connection um, by way of show tunes classic american show tunes um mm. in my life sort of in the great american songbook tradition in a way yeah i mean it makes sense i guess if you uh know about my propensity toward um that material the, uh, the later bob dylan material like triplicate uh you know some enchanted evening a song he does on there you know that's a, a great classic standard from south pacific the uh the musical mm-hmm. so um just like uh, Bob Dylan, I too have an appreciation for classics of the American stage. Um, and now, you know that. Yeah, it sounded nice on an iPhone voicemail. If you were in the studio with Jack Frost producing and the mic's carefully set up with a live band, I think there is a sort of a market for it. Well, I don't want to talk about it anymore, and also I, I want to sort of introduce you, uh, please, Nick Newman. Uh, we have been acquainted from Twitter for quite some time now. I think through a mutual friend Eddie, yeah, who put me on the 
whatever it's called, the that huge film people Twitter thre- uh, DM. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Sort of a, I don't know if it's a secret group. I think this might be the first time it's been really publicly discussed or acknowledged, but... Um, a lot of sensitive things are coming to light. But you, you are a film writer. I am managing editor of the film stage, an internationally read cinema publication. And I wear many hats while I'm there. My favorite one is interviewing filmmakers. Uh, if you, I'll plug it at the end, but you know, there's a handy little link with the last couple of years of interviews that I've done with the likes of David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Steven Soderbergh, Claire Denis, Tony Kushner, Lena Dunham, wow. Richard Kelly, uh, you know, a, a panoply of great minds. And I am not, by most definitions, a music person. I like music, but I tend to become obsessively fixated as if there's another sort of fixation on a small group of artists and listen to everything of theirs I can. Bob Dylan was one of my first musical loves. I gravitate towards this podcast naturally. I I'm also a big Lou Reed and John Cale fan. It sort of followed I would be at this free show. I don't know if we mentioned that it was a free show. It was, yeah. But it was really kind of remarkable to go to this at no cost. And all all kind of joking and cheekiness aside, it did feel like a small cultural event. Like a small major one. Yeah, it felt felt like little Woodstock for Jokerman podcasts anyway. (laughs) And a lot of people... I think we both knew were there. It seemed absolutely full, um, this relatively small space. Still not that small. I mean, there's a huge lawn area that seemed to be Mm -hmm. teeming with people. All the seats were filled. And I I don't know about you, but I bumped into uh, a lot of people I I know from various parts of my life. Saw Ivan Burko, uh, guest on Jokerman Podcast and bartender at Clandestino. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) Briefly crossed paths with Cass McCombs, one of the great songwriters oh. of our time, was there in attendance. The Lemon Twigs, good friends of mine, were there. And some guy wearing a, a John Cale and Lou Reed t-shirt, uh, Songs for Drella shirt, I, I walked up to I him. I saw that guy. I, yeah. I was like, can I take a picture of your shirt? And he, he was like, are you uh, Evan from Jokerman? And I said, I am. And he said, I've seen other people with Jokerman stuff here wow that is a that is kind of a homecoming for you and then you i think you said that you you met a bunch of people that you know at the show i did i i ran into a friend who i went to college with and i haven't seen in like eight years and he waved at me from across the seated area and he texted me is that you and i went oh my god yes let let me go up to you so we met up we had a very nice warm reunion and we planned to get together soon. I saw, you know, people from, I would say like three or four phases of my life at this show. And even at the end, as we were kind of standing near the exit, I just saw one person after another. Oh, you're here. You're here too. It's a genuinely touching testament to Kale as somebody who really brings people out. And a guy who I think, owing in some part to the show, certainly has had kind of a a sort of popularity renaissance, if that's an actual existing term uh, yeah, in recent yeah. years. Well, I think we've been trying as hard as we can to make that uh, continue to continue that if it was happening naturally at all. Um, I think there is some something of that 
that happened without the Jokerman bump, the famous Jokerman boost. Sure. Um, because there's a lot of uh, streaming songs. I think that his songs get caught up in the algorithm uh, in ways that I, I don't think they ever had um, exposure. Uh, I know Barracuda, it seems like if you play a certain kind of uh, early art rock playlist, like it'll pop up in there. You can be listening to television or Brian Eno. And the next song that the uh, algo will kick your way is, is like Barracuda or Andalusia or any of these other. Mm-hmm. Ca- uh, Fear uh, is a man's best friend. And a lot of those kale classics have had like a new life. A couple of needle drops in recent years, too. Yeah. Wh- which were? Where were they? Well, this one is not so interesting, maybe. But Barracuda is featured in the Andy Samberg comedy Palm Springs. Used decently, I'll say. But uh, my favorite, I don't know if you've talked about this on the show, Fear is a Man's Best Friend is featured prominently in a season 11 X-Files episode. Really? Yeah, where Mulder and Scully walk into a trailer and you see John Cale's eyes on the Fear vinyl poking out. And I was watching it and I had the, you know, Leo pointing moment where I go, what is that doing there? Yeah. And then the owner of the trailer, played by Haley Joel Osment, comes in and puts on the vinyl and talks to Mulder and Scully about chemtrails. While Fear is a Man's Best Friend plays. It's great. Wow. Yeah. But the season of The X-Files, which I will vouch for is very good, had so little cultural impact that nobody knows about this. Yeah, I don't think that that has anything to do with the current uh, enthusiasm, but uh, it must have laid some kind of groundwork. I'm sure some people in that crowd saw it's that. It's in the air. Yeah. You know. But this is the show of, uh, well, it's the only show I've ever seen of John Cale live, and this was why I was in New York really. It was like, I feel like every time I've heard of him playing in the last, I don't know how long it's been in Europe and I just wasn't around. I wasn't in that neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. Uh, But New York is uh, a place I lived and uh, like to go. So it was uh, a no brainer. And this is the, the mercy tour. This is the tour for his recent record, which, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I wasn't totally sure what to expect. Uh, what, what did you think when you're walking in? A bit same. I knew that Jumbo in the Modern World was the opening track, at least. Jumbo's having lunch with a king of beasts. I think that kind of keyed me in a little bit. I did peek at a set list, but didn't want to look too much. I didn't want to be too spoiled. But that kind of keyed me into this maybe leaning a bit towards the latter day, especially if he's going to play a non-album single as his kickoff. And the idea of it being a Mercy-centered show is just fine with me, because I actually had a great time with that album, which I've listened to multiple times this year. But... I will say that at the end of the show, a friend of mine was surprised and maybe a little frustrated, hoping for a bit more of the back catalog, uh, even though yeah, it, it seemed because it, it seemed like there was an odd mix and match, even in the order of the songs. Where towards the second half, he does lean a bit more into the back catalog, but it's not really what you'd per se expect when he plays "Hanky Panky Know How." as one of the last tracks, you know, that kind of takes you by surprise. I think that's also a natural response with someone like Kale, if you're a fan, where 
the discography is so big and so deep that there is basically no way a 100 minute show is going to scratch every itch. But if he wants to play the new record, that's great. I'm here for it. And if he wants to play deep cuts, just as good. So in that way, I came out satisfied. Maybe I'm just an easy lay. I don't know. I think I am too when it comes to John. I, I just feel like uh, I, I was actually really happy by the uh, the inclusion of certain what are basically pretty deep cuts. I mean, right off the top, uh, picture this beautiful summer night. Uh, the the evening is uh, is is darkening. Uh, is about nine p.m. Uh, and after Jumbo in the Modern World, which I think is um, nobody knows unless you're a major head, he instantly is going into Hedda Gabler. even on streaming services it's one of my favorite john kale tracks and definitely serious hardcore fan service and in a way that's not a vastly different augmented version of it it felt pretty true to the original i would say so i mean i I was curious for your take on interpretation of some of the back catalog stuff as it counterposed by the mercy tracks because yes. i did feel like at certain points I, I don't know if you've ever heard any of bob dylan's never-ending tour rough and ruddy ways oh. <laughs> it made me think a little bit of on those shows of which there's about 2600 you can choose from and maybe there's a patreon podcast that covers this if somebody's crazy enough to do that but it kind of made me think of that a little bit in that it sort of felt like he was putting those classic tracks a little bit in line with Mercy. Yeah. Where some songs that I knew pretty well, it took me a second. I kind of had to hear those first lines to really key into, oh, this is where we are right now. And the last track, spoiler, was Barracuda. And that a bit more announces itself from the opening notes as the classic. But I think that's also keeping in line with Jumbo is the opening track, you know, there's the welcome and the, there's the goodbye. He is kind of putting a neat bow on either end of the show in that way. But uh, for me, huge John Kelfan, and I'll confess to not knowing Hedda Gabler or say Half Past France so well as Barracuda or his version of Heartbreak Hotel or even something like Guts. But it was the kind of consistent experience where it just kind of sent me down to listening to those songs. Uh, multiple times over in the last week the moments that struck me the most were the moments where he played uh some of the more 
classic rocker songs though um guts was Mm -hmm. like uh, just totally blew me away i was so happy that he was playing it and he sounded 20 30 years younger and also they did uh helen of troy and yeah cable hogue both of which with uh, john on guitar yeah and he was he was going for it I I thought that an interesting thing about this show was that it goes both ways, the interpretation of, of the songs. In that the Mercy material is so heavily reliant on digital and electronic effects and drum machines and synths that there were times when I I was actually really interested to see how they were executing it in a bit more of a streamlined rock band fashion. Um, And likewise that uh, electronic element that is there which which was really prominent on some uh songs did also bleed into songs that we know uh to be a bit more no as a bit more traditionally executed so it was kind of this middle ground overall that i found to be really effective night crawling was the song after head of gabbler mm-hmm. and that felt like definitely a bit more stripped down and straightforward than the the version on Mercy, which has this kind of dense electronic production. This is a night crawling. four-piece band uh john and I, I don't have the names of the players but just bass drums guitar and they were great i thought nightcrawling was definitely the most straightforward rock interpretation of the material mm-hmm. maybe that and out your window uh, also Moonstruck, Nico's song. I also really liked Mercy, the album, but um, my relationship with it is continuing to evolve. I think uh, it's it's one that I I think is continually showing itself it's a it's a major like grower of a record very much so i mean it kind of has a a slurried half away quality for so much of it and it's so long that to trawl through it and kind of pick up every piece of it i just don't think is possible on an initial listen but it has a great earworm quality to it yeah where i just find myself going back to kind of 
cover the ground and see what I've missed. Uh, and I think, you know, something like Nightcrawling has such a great hook. Oh, yeah. That central chorus. That live, it just kind of, whatever the level of interpretation between album and live rendition, it just kind of hits no matter what. That's, that's a really iron crowd song. same with Nico's song too which i thought was fantastic live and played into the very curious projections that were going on during the show yes those are uh by abby portner sister of av terror from animal collective no kidding yes okay uh doing the visuals for the the album artwork and I think a huge standout for the show, as you alluded to the look of the, the projections, uh, the, the, which are very thoughtfully designed. And I think were to my surprise and uh, delight, like they were really based on each song. Like every song Mm -hmm. had an accompanying visual that in some way related to the lyric, uh, without being too, obvious right yeah yeah it it wasn't a you know youtube compilation from 2008 that puts the most obvious photos against every lyric of a song (laughs) if that reference scans i feel like there's a million of those out there but i felt that you know you have something like the gravestones for nightcrawling i believe it was uh i don't remember what was on for night crawling but uh, there was an eyeball for uh during guts i think yeah there is um series of dancers or like 1920s footage of like the flowing dresses these dresses and flowing dancers of some type for uh out, out your window um mm-hmm. there was skeletons with big googly eyes at one point uh mm-hmm. and most memorably probably was at the end with Barracuda there's just there's footage of uh Michael Myers Spirit Halloween animatronic with a tag on it saying like twenty five dollars Spirit Halloween like stabbing down mm-hmm. uh that was the that that was great it's it was inspired no I mean it it was in the kind of silly bad taste that i think kale is so good at bringing out yeah that vulgarity and also there was some touches i mean i've even thought of it because of nico's song moonstrike had some really beautiful uh stylized portraits of nico in um, Mm -hmm. black and white and sort of blown out color uh just really artfully done uh i can't say enough about how much i enjoyed that aspect of the show um also that happened i think waiting for the man which comes up there were projections that were 
similar to like the exploding plastic and the inevitable Andy Warhol. You know, on the on the level of the Nico projections or waiting for the man, it it is one of those things where at the risk of seeming a bit too easily wowed or obsequious or whatever, when I say that it was you know, I did have this moment sitting there watching him perform that song and think, good Lord, I'm actually watching a member of the Velvet Underground perform a Velvet Underground song Mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, you feel versions of that with Dylan when you see him live, certainly. But in this way, it almost felt stronger because this seemed like a pretty close interpretation of the original song. It seemed like a full sensory dropping you into the moment of what you're actually witnessing. Maybe Dr. Obama down in peace on one shout the Waiting for the Man cover. Tell me if this is completely off base, please. But I don't know if you know about David Bowie re-recording Rebel Rebel in 2003. The reality tour. Yeah, which is a version that I I like. Like, it's a tasteful updating, kind of acknowledging what's come before while not being too adherent to it, not feeling like it has to just play a note-for-note version. made me think a little bit of and i'm a big fan of this when mo tucker would cover vu tracks on her solo album oh yeah you know we also saw it in prospect park which for the non-new york listeners maybe it's worth mentioning that prospect park is around park slope which is an area that has a lot of these sort of brooklyn parents the brooklyn dad defiance and the you know moms and so on and so forth and they were bringing their young kids out to the show. And I was looking around and I saw a kid maybe, you know, between like eight and 10 who was wearing what looked like a dinosaur onesie and was sitting there kind of confused next to their parents. And I saw at another point, a kid, you know, couldn't have been older than like 13 was being brought in by what I assume was the kid's dad. And it is funny to think you know, what will those kids think of this show when they look back at it in like 10, 15 years? Yeah. You know, this is what I'm talking about as talking about as like a weird little cultural moment to attend this free John Cale concert that brought out the real heads and the people who were just kind of there because it's part of the Celebrate Brooklyn series. I heard somebody say that they uh, they actually overheard someone who was thought they were at a John Cage show and that they were really confused. (laughs) Those kids who were seeing it for the first time, I'd like to think that it's having the effect on them as, I don't know, listening to the Beatles all the time, like having the Beatles 
in the house as a kid for me was like where now I can look back and recognize that like, well, Strawberry Fields is uh, or uh, anything from the White Album. There's there's stuff on there that is crazy compared to normal music. But at mm-hmm. the time it felt normal. Uh, I didn't I, I just was naturally having my idea about what pop and rock music is uh, set and uh, sort of expanded at the same time by encountering something like this. And that was something that was a huge takeaway for me seeing John Cale live at last was especially on moments when he really went wild with his uh, interpretation. There were times when I, I was just kind of wowed at the recognition that this is one of the founders of this music deciding still what the parameters are and continuing to extend and challenge the boundaries of what you are to expect at a rock show uh, of any kind. Yeah, he rewrote the rules of his own radical reworking the like possibly fight starter with couples at this show was uh, punishing interpretation of half past France, which was, I think like nine minutes long. psychedelic dirge it was like Mm -hmm. completely bonkers and patiently so it was Mm -hmm. like a slow motion car crash and anybody who didn't know that song at all i shudder to think what they were going through (laughs) but for me it was a thrill because i was witnessing john kale recontextualize an old old song of his now in a way that was uh, completely new and totally committed. 
Yeah, or you have something like Barracuda, which is one of the tightest, most perfect songs by any artist that I could name. I think one of the most endlessly listenable songs because it always ends before you expect it to. Even if you've heard it a thousand times, you're always kind of surprised that it trails off when it does. And then this version was extended by what, three or four minutes? Yeah, they really jammed it out at the end. And also the way that he uh, phrased the the lyrics was Bob Dylan-like in its bending of time and space. It It was not the the same as the record at all there's parts Mm -hmm. that were kind of like truncated parts that were rushed but consistently so it was rearranged but still Mm -hmm. carried like the the vibe of that song yeah yeah absolutely no i was i was tapping my foot i was slapping my knee it's exactly what i needed to send me out you happen to catch his appearance recently on the perfectly imperfect newsletter i did yeah i was talking uh with tyler who runs that uh and asking him how that happened mm-hmm. of course it happened the same way that i got to have a press pass to talk to his pr people but the things that he says in it are just like you know instead of saying specific things he's into right now he's just like trying on new clothes and like always always trying something new and he mentioned something about listening to like non-binary artists while with his nails painted or watching a terence malick movie for the 10th time and still wondering at the ingenuity of it he's uh someone who's completely uninterested in being old uh acting old feeling old mm-hmm it was his first time playing in New York, maybe all of the United States since 2017. And the extent to which he has built up this kind of younger fan base, I would say probably very much in the time since then, where in the streaming era, in the podcasting era, Kale has become this kind of entirely new figure. He's almost undergone like a kind of transfiguration in the sense of fandom to me it was very inspiring and the that kind of colliding with a really strong focus on an excellent new album from this year made it uh in that way kind of an ideal experience john kale is 81 years old and i wouldn't say that this show was like good for an 81 year old I think it was a good show period Thank you, Nick. I can't tell you how pleased I am that you were here to join me, and I hope you never, ever show anybody. I have to be like Werner Herzog right now. You must never, you must never show anyone this tape. It will be a treasure of mine if you decided 
to mix it into the show at some point, I would not feel like the secret has been spoiled or the special thing between us has been compromised. If you also wish to keep it completely hidden from public view, we can also do that. Okay. Thank you, Evan. Jokerman. I suppose I'm glad I'm on this train and it's long somewhere between Dunkirk and Paris. Most people here are still asleep, but I'm awake looking out.